it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Thursday, December 15th, 2022. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thrilled to have you all here. Thrilled that this show is growing. We just had a meeting today with some of the numbers. We are growing thanks to you. Let's keep it going. We really deeply appreciate it. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. GuyBensonShow.com, everything right there, including the free podcast every day on demand when the show is over. Totally free of charge. At Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram, you can send us a follow there. Sometimes we post some bonus content as well at Guy Benson Show. Catch me tonight on Special Report. I'll be on the panel with Brett Bayer and that whole crew. I believe Josh Holmes will be in the house. Looking forward to that right around 6.40, 6.45 Eastern Time. That is on Fox News Channel. Here's the lineup that we've got on the radio side for you today. We'll get to our first guest here in just a moment. In our next hour, Charles Payne will join us from FBN. The Dow just tanking right now. He'll explain why. Luke Rosiak of The Daily Wire, he's been covering faithfully, in-depth, a scandal in Northern Virginia involving sexual assaults and a cover-up in a high school and a whole school system, actually, dismissed by Democrats as a right-wing hoax. Barack Obama, campaigning for Terry McAuliffe last year, said it was a phony, trumped-up culture war. Well, it was not. It is not. There are explosive new details. Luke Rosiak is here with those coming up later on in the show. Also, Congressman Dan Crenshaw in our final hour, Republican of Texas. Looking forward to that conversation. It's a very Texas-heavy show today because we welcome, as our first guest, U.S. Senator John Cornyn, Republican of the Lone Star State as well. And, Senator, great to have you back on the show. Merry Christmas to you. Thanks, Guy. Merry Christmas to you. uh, We've got 10 days to go. We've got a lot of work to do here in Congress before before Christmas, but uh, looking forward to it. Do you think it's going to get done? Let's talk about government funding. There's the continuing resolution discussion. There's the omnibus discussion. Will the Democrats take the Republicans' offer in the Senate? I know for a lot of people it's out in the country, it's kind of a boring annual drama. Do you think this actually gets done before Congress, you know, goes on recess uh, for the for the holidays? Well, this is entirely contrived, um, and by that I mean that this end-of-the-year drama and, um, and threat of a government shutdown unless we pass a huge trillion point seven trillion dollar bill is uh, all by design because it maximizes uh, Chuck Schumer's and, and Nancy Pelosi's power. What should happen, Guy, and this is process, and I know sometimes that's boring, but it, process is policy in a sense – is we would have pass individual appropriation bills sometimes before the end of the fiscal year on January, excuse me, uh, September the 31st, and we would have a chance to 
uh, debate them, amend them. Uh, the American people will see exactly what we are doing, and it'd be a much more, um, I think, responsible way to deal with uh, the need to fund the federal government. But here we are, 10 days before Christmas, and uh, this is just exactly the sort of process that, uh, that Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi like, because it basically makes the rest of the rank-and-file members of the House and the Senate spectators uh, to uh, a game that they, they play. And your choice is to vote up or vote down, and uh, there's not any other options. Meanwhile, in the Senate, some rare bipartisan overwhelming agreement on an issue that we've talked about here, TikTok, very popular app used especially among younger people in this country. They love it. It's also owned by the Chinese. It's controlled ultimately by the Chinese Communist Party. It is without question an espionage tool, even though it's sort of addictive and fun for a lot of young people in the West. Tell us about what the Senate just did on TikTok, and do you think this actually gets traction and might become law? Well, Guy, you may remember I'm a member of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, so we're very much aware uh, through cl- both classified and open briefings about the, 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 what, uh, what the uh, People's Republic of China and the Chinese Communist Party that run that country, what they're doing. And essentially what they're doing is trying to hoover up all the personal data on every American and uh, stockpile that and use it uh, to their economic and, uh, and, and national security advantage. Um, you remember the fight over Huawei, which was a Chinese-based uh, telecom system that essentially right. was going to be used for the same purposes and also for surveillance on, uh, on adversaries by the Chinese Communist Party, the People's Republic of China. TikTok is the same. It's, it's uh, Somebody has, someone has called this, uh, this is addictive as crack. And certainly for many young people who don't understand uh, what they are getting involved with, they're giving up a lot of their personal information. And uh, many of them are posting, uh, posting things on there in order to become famous, at least uh, uh, among their friends and peers. But uh, make no mistake about it, there's no distinction between a, a company like TikTok and the Chinese Communist Party, and I believe it's a national security threat. And the Senate just voted, was it, was it totally unanimous? To yes. treat it as yeah, such? I'm sorry. Yeah, we voted unanimously to ban it on government um, devices. So hopefully anybody who's got TikTok, an app, they will remove it from their devices. Uh, I would recommend people doing that even though there's no law that extends to that point, uh, but to make sure that their, their children, assuming they have uh, that on their devices, that they uh, remove it and, uh, and not, uh, not use it at all. Yeah. And one of the other concerns about TikTok beyond the CCP just collecting vast amounts of data about huge numbers of people in this country and elsewhere is that they're also able to seed into the feeds of a lot of people who may not be reading a lot or following the news or following things closely. Propaganda, political propaganda to benefit the CCP, to drag on the United States, for example. They won't market as propaganda. And this is just we're seeing just a little tip of the iceberg of what this type of tool could be used for by an unscrupulous authoritarian regime, which is what the CCP is. I think it's important to raise this red flag, and this was an important, I think, bipartisan step, at least to control part of it. And so I'm glad and gratified to have seen that. 
Meanwhile, on the issue of immigration, Senator Cornyn, I have spent some time on this show over the last few days respectfully but pretty forcefully rejecting what your colleague Senator Tom Tillis was in the process of trying to work out with Senator Sinema from Arizona. And I like her and I like him. I think he's smart. I think he's consensus-minded. I think that's constructive for the most part. But given what's happening in the border crisis and has been happening for the last two years and how it's about to get worse and just the abject failures, almost intentional failures, I would say, of this administration, dereliction of duty, I'm really not in much of a mood to kind of give or take certain issues and horse trade and do swaps in terms of policy and come up with some sort of deal on immigration, even if the individual components are somewhat reasonable. What was coming together seemed woefully insufficient to me. You know, as someone who's usually, again, open to this stuff right now, it has to be enforcement and enforcement first and only, which is not the direction this was necessarily going. I saw a quote from you saying that there isn't a lot of appetite for this among your Republican colleagues in the U.S. Senate, with all respect and all deference to Senator Tillis. Do you think that it's fair to say, based on that, that this compromise that might be in the process of being hammered out is dead on arrival in the Senate? Yes, I think um, I think it is. And uh, I, I respect both Senator Tillis and Senator Sinema, and I think they're they're motivated for all the right reasons to try to fix our broken system. But I also agree with you that the Biden administration has poisoned the well by their open border policies, which is causing this uh, crisis at the border, which is getting ready to get worse uh, when Title 42, the public health title that's being used by the Border Patrol to expel uh, some adults, uh, adult males typically, um, about out, out of about a half a million, I think they've used it maybe to, in about case of about 70,000 uh, individuals. But uh, they could, if they had a plan, come up with a, uh, another plan to, to, to use to control the border. But a year ago, the Border Patrol told me, if we lose Title 42 without some alternative in place, um, we're going to lose control. And I think that's what the Biden administration is risking. So they poisoned the well to, I think, legitimate discussions about how to improve our broken immigration system. I happen to be someone who believes that legal immigration has been one of the reasons for the great success of our country. Uh, But legal immigration is controlled. And uh, what's happening at the border is simply out of control, not to even touch on the drugs that come across that took the lives of 108,000 Americans last year alone. And by the way, Senator, I just saw this report on Twitter. This is from a Bloomberg reporter, Ellen Gilmer, who says it's now confirmed based on her reporting that the Cinema Tillis immigration framework is officially off the table for the lame duck session before the new Congress. They're looking to continue work on that framework, uh, which is now finalized in the next Congress. But I don't think there'll be very much appetite for anything like that in the House, which the Republicans will take over for the reasons that you just laid out. Like, I keep saying this like a broken record. In a vacuum, something akin to Tillis Cinema would be okay with me. You could probably improve it. I'd like to see a little bit more hard enforcement in there, uh, more border structures, uh, more border patrol agents, that kind of thing. And I'm not opposed, in theory, to a DREAM Act. I'm just not interested in marrying these things and doing some sort of grand compromise when the problem is as acute and disgraceful as it is. 
And so if it's off the table in the lame duck with the Democrats still in charge across the board, I would imagine it's probably dead as it exists in the next Congress, too. And I don't take pleasure in saying it, but I am glad that that's the case. And I think you've explained why in the answer that you just gave. Uh, One more question for you, Senator Cornyn, before we let you go. Yesterday was the anniversary, 10 years, believe it or not, of the Sandy Hook massacre in Newtown, Connecticut. And we've talked about school shootings and legislative responses to, for example, Uvalde a number of months ago. Uh, You were instrumental on that front on the Republican side. I know you caught some grief for it from some conservatives, and we talked through uh, that legislation that you helped sponsor and negotiate at the time. Yesterday, President Biden gave some remarks reflecting on the 10-year anniversary of that horrific atrocity a decade ago, and kind of the thrust of his comments were that we should feel collective shame as a society, that we haven't you know, stopped this type of thing through more gun control. And it it kind of just felt like he didn't want to acknowledge the bipartisan bill that you guys did pass after Uvalde. And I just feel like that is something and plays into one of the fears that a lot of conservatives have sometimes, which is if you give the Democrats something on this front, they will take it, they will pass it, they'll celebrate for two seconds, and then they'll basically memory hole it and pretend like it didn't happen. And the next time there's a moment to say we have to do something, shame on us, they kind of pretend like those good faith efforts never occurred. Is that something that you're feeling here watching the president saying what he's saying? Or is it still worth trying to make some progress, you know, some productive progress, even if certain political actors kind of don't want to acknowledge it selectively for political reasons? Yeah, well, there are not 60 votes in the uh, Senate for an assault weapons ban. And to me, the focus is on the wrong thing when you focus on the on on the gun itself. Uh, I think we should focus on the person that's pulling the trigger and law abiding citizens like me um, are not a threat to public safety. Um, And that's why there's hundreds of hundreds of uh, uh, millions, really, of, uh, of weapons in the United States that are used for recreation, sporting, hunting, or self-defense, and I believe that's protected by the Second Amendment. What I do believe is is open for discussion, and what we did in the bill following Uvalde was focus on people with criminal records and people with mental health problems. Those yep. are disqualified under current law from purchasing a firearm, but the problem was we saw in Uvalde that you get an 18-year-old, given the lack of access to juvenile records for mental health or criminal records, uh, they can show up and it's like they were born yesterday and they can clear a background check like Salvador Ramos did. So what we provided for is is an enhanced background check for for 18 to 19 and 20-year-olds that uh, will allow access as state law permits to juvenile mental health and criminal records. And I believe, I've seen some of the early results from the FBI, I believe it's already saved lives, and I'm proud of the work that we were able to do. Yeah, it's just irksome to me that sometimes people will kind of pretend like that didn't happen, and shame on us, and especially those guys on the other side. And I'd also point out, unless I'm mistaken, in Connecticut where that horrible thing happened 10 years ago, there was an assault weapons ban. 
you know, that was the law, and we still saw what we saw. Senator John Cornyn, we've got to leave it there for now. I know we covered a lot of ground here to start the show. Republican of Texas, our guest here, he sits on the Finance, Judiciary, and Intelligence Committees in the U.S. Senate. Merry Christmas to you and your family, Senator, and we'll catch up, I'm sure, next year. We really appreciate it. Merry Christmas. Take care. With that, we will step aside and come right back. Just getting started on this Thursday, it's The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. Precise, personal, powerful. Is America's weather team in the palm of your hands? Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. I love this so much. So a couple days ago, I saw on my social media feeds some photos of friends of mine at a Christmas party. I think it was the Schlapps Christmas party. I'm not sure about that. Don't quote me on that, but I think it was. And they were there, and there were a bunch of people there, center-right folks. And my friends were taking photos and posing for pics and posting them on Instagram and whatever. And someone who was at the party was Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. And I guess this little juicy item, at least by D.C. standards, got out into the media. And Ruth Marcus, a liberal columnist at The Washington Post, was very concerned about this. Justice Kavanaugh partying with conservatives. This is her column, opinion by Ruth Marcus. Justice Brett Kavanaugh's appearance at a conservative-studded holiday party highlights a disturbing trend among the justices. More prevalent on the right funneling their public appearances into compatible ideological silos. (gasps) Kavanaugh was at a Christmas party with conservatives. Deeply disturbing to Ruth Marcus at the Washington Post. Well, the Judicial Crisis Network highlighted this. Uh, Here's an item from Politico in 2017. Spotted. Justice Elena Kagan... And the Washington Post's Ruth Marcus at their annual Peking Gourmet Inn birthday bash with Merrick Garland and other friends. Merrick Garland, a judge at the time, that of course is now Attorney General under Biden. Peking Gourmet Inn, fabulous Chinese restaurant in Northern Virginia. Great duck. Love it. Sounds like a fun party. Justice Elena Kagan, Merrick Garland, at the annual birthday bash, having dinner and partying with Ruth Marcus herself of the Washington Post, the liberal who is very concerned about the disturbing trend of justices hanging out with compatible ideological silo-type events. She does them with the libs herself. The standards only apply to one side. I love this. Did she remember this when she wrote the column? Oh, that is good. That is so rich. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. 
Guy Benson. Back on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcasts always free. Well, the protests and demonstrations in Iran continue to happen. And I know we have a very short attention span generally in the West, in this country when it comes to news stories. It is amazing to see what's been happening now for months. After a young woman was killed or died in regime custody, that sparked and triggered a whole series of demonstrations led by women standing up for their rights, removing their hijabs, doing things that were really and have been unthinkable. And there's been a crackdown. Human rights organizations say that hundreds of people have been killed by the regime, and now they're starting to publicly execute some of the demonstrators to send a message. And rather than intimidating the demonstrators, they are only angering them further. There was another, I think, a second execution that I saw this week. Someone was hung from a crane publicly. The regime has now sentenced a soccer player in that country to death for supporting women's rights and this movement. They are an absolutely evil, ruthless, autocratic, theocratic regime. The fact that we've had a lot of the foreign policy establishment in this country obsessed with striking deals with them that won't prevent them from getting nuclear weapons, ultimately, it just is beyond me. And their behavior is so egregious that even Hillary Clinton, we played this audio on the show last couple of weeks, even Hillary Clinton saying, walk away from all negotiations with these people. We were negotiating with the Iranians through the Russians, of all folks. Until just recently, she's like, it doesn't matter what sort of nuclear deal you think you might get. And by the way, it would be awful. Given what they are doing, we should not be giving any aid and comfort or legitimacy to this regime while people are risking their lives out in the streets, standing up to the regime, demanding their rights, calling in many cases for a collapse of the regime, not because some outside force is saying it should go, but because the people of Iran want it to go. It is Incredibly brave and very inspiring. Now, something happened at the United Nations yesterday that is interesting. It's it's good news to an extent. I'm not sure it's great news because ultimately what the U.N. does or doesn't do is almost completely irrelevant. My disdain and contempt really in, in a lot of cases for the U.N. continues to grow. But... There's a body within the U.N. that makes the decisions about who is on what various committees. I'm sort of just trying to make this as simplified as possible. And within that group, there was a vote pushed by the U.S. So this was the Biden administration spearheading this, and that's good. I support this. To have Iran expelled from the U.N. Women's Rights Commission. And happily, I guess... The vote was successful. 29 voted yes, throw them out. Eight voted no. 16 countries abstained. Just couldn't bring themselves to come down one way or another on whether Iran should remain on the Women's Rights Commission at the United Nations. Now, let me just say this first. The fact that Iran was a part of this organization to begin with, given their entire history 
since the Islamic regime in 1979, the fact that they were on this at all, I think tells you everything you need to know about the United Nations. Morally bankrupt and useless when it comes to most things. They might serve some good purposes here or there on you know, getting food to people who need it or whatever, but in terms of some sort of moral exemplar, standing up for what's right in the world, I mean, it's just often disgraceful. For instance, it reminds me, this little episode, of how the UN General Assembly months ago finally voted to suspend Russia from the Human Rights Council. I laugh because it's just so sick. Months into their aggressive war crime riddled invasion of Ukraine, months later, the Biden administration finally got off their rear ends. I've been calling for it and said, oh, maybe we should try to get Russia off the Human Rights Council since they're just slaughtering civilians at will throughout Ukraine as they're just trying to take over a neighboring country with no provocation or justification whatsoever. And ultimately, by a 93-24 vote, again, dozens and dozens of abstentions, I want to say like 50-plus abstentions, I think. They voted to suspend Russia from the Human Rights Council. Russia, along with – I mean, the list of countries on the Human Rights Council is an embarrassment. It's an absolute embarrassment and an affront to human rights, and it invalidates the purpose of the organization. Like, Russia arguably wasn't even the worst of them. But they've been now suspended. This was months ago. The fact that Russia – with a horrible human rights record where dissenters are jailed or killed, journalists fall out of windows, quote-unquote, if they're critical of the regime. They have sham elections. All the regional meddling that they do. I mean, the fact that they, the Russians, Vladimir Putin's Russia, was a part of the Human Rights Council, is actually right on brand for the UN, considering that Iran is on the Women's Rights Commission. At least until yesterday. So they have been booted. First time in U.N. history that any member state was removed from this particular body, according to Hillel Neuer, who does a lot of accountability work at the U.N. Good for him. In the lead up to the vote, the ambassador from Canada was trying to shame some of these countries who might have been on the fence or inclined to vote no. Here's what he said during that debate at the U.N. in Cut 17. I would ask this simple question. Is there really nothing that a state can do against its own citizens that has zero consequences for its membership in a commission on the status of women? Is there really no standard, not imposed by Canada or the United States or, any, or anyone else, but by the UN itself that says the dignity of women is at the forefront of our common efforts? And now we're watching what we have been watching for the last three months, and we're seriously being told, well, I'm sorry, we can't do this because it's not appropriate. Well, in Canada's view, what's not appropriate is killing people for their political opinions. It's picking up children and torturing them in prison. It's forcing women to dress in a way that they do not want to dress. And that is incompatible with a commission that calls itself the Commission on the Status of Women. I mean, amen. Absolutely right. Canada has some 
difficult questions to answer these days on human dignity, not to go the moral equivalency route. It's nothing like Iran, obviously, obviously. We'll be talking more about that in Canada tomorrow, but good for that ambassador dispatched to the U.N. from Ottawa to just say what needed to be said. And still, 16 countries abstained, eight voted no, compared to the 29 who voted yes. So Iran Iran is out. I don't want to just dismiss it as completely irrelevant. In the scheme of things, I think a lot of what the U.N. does in these debates and these votes are irrelevant. There's just there's no enforcement mechanism for anything. The consequences are all symbolic. I think a lot of this is a waste of time and space, resources, money, all of it. But to the extent that this news might filter into Iran, where the women and the young people, everyone who's involved in risking their safety, their freedom, their lives, to fight back against the regime and to protest against what's happening, for them to get wind of this or word of this, that the international community just kicked the regime out of the Women's Rights Commission at the United Nations, that might be a morale boost to them. And to the extent that that's true, good. If there's, if there's something productive out of this, hopefully it's that. But I just keep coming back to the twisted, sick joke that Iran was included on this panel to begin with. Would you like to guess a few of the countries that voted no? The eight no votes included Russia, still angry that they were kicked off the Human Rights Council, which they should have never been on, but they are, and China. Now, they were defeated in this vote, which was small potatoes in the scheme of things. I single out Russia and China not only because of how egregious those regimes are on a whole bunch of fronts, but because both of those countries have permanent veto power at the Security Council at the U.N., which is the only body that really means anything there to the extent that it does at all. So here you had two countries with the Iranian regime just like slaughtering women amid all the years of repression. And a few of them speak up and push back and they're getting thrown in jail or beaten in the streets or killed or executed. And the Russians and the Chinese say, we're with them. We're with that regime. We're going to vote to protect them, even from this little tiny embarrassment, which I'm sure they don't really care about that much back in Tehran, at least in the halls of power. They've got bigger problems. But let's say one day something is actually necessary to do when it comes to Iran and a nuclear program, for example, that they have. You've got Russia and China, some of the worst actors in the world, sitting as permanent members with veto power on the Security Council. And again, you just sort of ask the question, when you strip away all of the rhetoric and the symbolism and sort of like the history and the inertia, what is the point of the United Nations? China's actively engaged in a genocide. They persecute people. They disappear them. They put them in concentration camps. 
forced abortions, just horrific re-education programs. We've talked about some of the things that they've done. Crushing democracy in Hong Kong. It's just the long rap sheet for the CCP. And China is a member of the Human Rights Council. China helped rally the countries on the Human Rights Council to defeat a vote to even debate their own genocide that they're undertaking in their country against their own people. There is a move by the West to debate the Uyghur genocide in Xinjiang, China. And China, which has been throwing around a lot of money around the world, buying a bunch of friends, enough of their friends rallied to their side to kill even a debate in the Human Rights Council on the genocide being carried out by a member of said Human Rights Council actively right now, China. Also with the permanent membership on the Security Council, voting in favor of keeping Iran in the Women's Rights Commission. I mean, what a farce. What a farce. The Trump administration pulled out of the Human Rights Council. Right. Donald Trump, I think it was John Bolton at the time. They said, you know, this is this is ridiculous. As should be obvious. There's no point in the United States of America being a part of a commission on human rights that includes until just recently Russia, also still China, Cuba, Venezuela, some of these Middle Eastern countries with some of the worst human rights records on the planet. Why legitimize the Human Rights Council when it's just spitting in the face of any actual true definition or concept of human rights. So the Trump team pulled us out of it. And I think they were fully justified in doing that. Then Team Biden came running back in the whole multilateralism. It's our time to shine, gang. And back into the Human Rights Council we went. And what did that achieve? A lost vote against China on a genocide? Great. Slow clap. So glad our tax dollars are being used for this. I know some conservatives complain about money going to Ukraine and helping the Ukrainians fight to defend their own country. I'm all for that. Help the Ukrainians. Rooting for Ukraine. If you disagree, fine. Sorry, that's just my my position. Russia's the bad guy there, period. But if we want to talk about waste of taxpayer money in the foreign policy space, not to, like, you know, beat a drum and an old hobby horse on the right. I mean, the U.N., come on. Iran until yesterday was on the Women's Rights Commission. It's just, it's just pathetic. And I understand sometimes the U.S. can be a force for good there. I think Nikki Haley, for example, had some great moments representing our country, helping to rally to get Iran finally booted off of this thing, and Russia kicked out of their thing, at least temporarily suspended. All right, you know, I'm not saying the U.S. should pull out completely from the U.N., but sometimes you have to think about how much more damage we're doing by being a part of this joke. Like the Human Rights Council, for example. Remember, during the Obama administration, they invited the world to come and lecture the U.S. about our terrible human rights situation in America. And all these despotic regimes came forth to wag their fingers, and we just sat there and took it as we're the by far biggest funder of the U.N. and the host of the U.N. headquarters. 
I think you should pick your spots, but a lot of the time I see very little upside. The United States sort of playing along with this charade. But at least yesterday there was like a little mini blow for something meaningful with Iran kicked off of something they should have never been a part of, obviously, in the first place. And I'll repeat, if that gives aid and comfort and help and morale boosts to the people doing what they're doing so courageously in Iran, then I guess that's a good thing. Got a break. We'll be right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. You're listening to Guy Benson. We're back here on the Guy Benson Show. Since we've talked about this issue a bit since it happened, including some follow-ups, update from the New York Times on that Paul Pelosi attack out in San Francisco. There's been a dispute over exactly the sequence of things, and some of the details were hazy and confusing. And the NBC reporter who said that he answered the door, then walked back over toward the attacker, he said that on the air on the Today Show, then disappeared off the air. They retracted the report. Local media said actually that was true. Well, the New York Times is reporting that based on body cam footage, Pelosi answered the door. Both he and the attacker, quote, had a hand on a foot-long hammer. When police told them to drop it, the suspect took control of the hammer and struck Pelosi really hard once. So maybe a little bit of clarification there. Meanwhile, the attacker, who of course was... Framed as a right-winger and part of the right-wing rhetoric violence problem. Well, his son has given an interview at PJ Media who says, no, his dad is a left-winger. Progressive views, human rights, equality, justice, not a right-winger, peace activist, Green Party, BLM, Antifa. So a bit of a narrative complicator there. Not that it'll stop them, but facts do matter, at least here on The Guy Benson Show. Another hour coming up. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a new hour here on the Guy Benson Show, Thursday edition. Thanks for tuning in, 3 to 6 Eastern every weekday, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free on demand when the show is over Every day plus bonus Benson on the weekends. I'll be on special report tonight with Brett Bayer. I'm on the panel right around 6.40, maybe quarter to 7 Eastern time. That is FNC. Looking forward to that. Fox News alert. Market update sponsored by Americans for Prosperity. Committed to empowering every American to realize their own American dream by being champions of policies that expand freedom and opportunity Very pleased and proud to partner with them, AmericansForProsperity.org. The Dow just hammered today, down 763 points, closing out at 33,202. And joining us now to explain this to us is Charles Payne, host of Making Money with Charles Payne, of course, at 2 p.m. Eastern every day on Fox Business Network and, Charles, it's good to have you back, and Merry Christmas to you and your family. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Uh, Dow down almost 800 points. What happened? 
Well, yeah, the Dow is actually in the better performing of the major indices. So S&P was down 2.5%, NASDAQ down over 3%, uh, and the Russell Small Caps down 2.7%. I think today's session was a vote of no confidence for the Federal Reserve, and I'll explain why. Yesterday, the Fed, uh, they finished their two-day meeting, the FOMC, uh, Federal Open Markets Committee. They voted, and they decided to hike rates yet again, 50 basis points. And this is down from a series of 75 basis points, which, by the way, you know, I, I don't know that it's it's hard to really express that these are these numbers are huge. You know, these are numbers that we just don't necessarily see. In the last 30 years, the Fed has hiked rates 75 basis points five times. It's all been this year. So we're feeling like, okay, maybe the Fed feels like it's done a lot. This is the most aggressive Fed in history. They've raised rates faster than any Fed in history. It has a lag effect. We know it's sort of like planting something that uh, you know evolves and erupts later on down the road. There's already signs that the economy is slowing. We see that in housing. We see it in other places. But Jay Powell gave a, another press conference yesterday, and he was pretty adamant that they're going to stay stronger and longer, and they're going to keep pounding away, essentially you know, bringing recession, maybe even a deep recession, into play. So fast forward to this morning, Guy, we get all this data, a lot of data out this morning. Retail sales came in three three times worse than expected. There's a manufacturing number out in New York that uh, the Empire State Fed, that was a disaster. The Philly Fed, that was a disaster. Um, something is not right. And so I think today was all about, yes, not only probably is there a recession coming, but the Federal Reserve is going to make it worse. Oh, so when we talk about the retail sales number, you said it was 3x worse than expected. Walk us through that a little bit and why that matters, because that's retail sales is a big one. Retail sales is huge. Um, you know, we're we're we love to spend money. So two thirds of our economy is the consumer and uh, about 66, 70 percent. And it, you know, we knew we knew it would slow down a little bit, but to slow down to this degree, it means that people are starting to get hit. And I think what's what's really scary about this is it's a combination, right? Obviously, inflation has taken a toll. But on the horizon, uh, the recession is also looking like it's going to take a toll. We've seen savings rates go from over 30 percent to the second lowest in history. At the same time, we've seen the speed of credit card use at the fastest pace in two decades. You don't need to be an economist, right? You don't need to... You don't need to, 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 to have a, a degree in economics to know if the savings rate is free-falling, plummeting, and, and credit card use is it's skyrocketing, people are pushing it. Where we can push it to, how far we can push it uh, is the question. You can debate it. But then when we, we saw this already, and then you add on to it these retail sales numbers, uh, and you just start to say, golly, you know, maybe the, the consumer isn't as strong as the economists think, because when you, I have economists on my show every day, I pull my hair out. <laughs> I really do. I just wonder if they only know rich people. If they only look at, at you know the data. Have they ever gone to a supermarket? Because when you talk to an economist and they are so overly confident, the consumer is strong and they give you some good stats. You know, income versus disposable income versus debts. It's near the all-time low. You know, these things are sure fine and dandy. Unfortunately, they take everyone. So they bunch in the second bottom, the bottom half of consumers with the top half of consumers. 
That one 20% at the top, they're doing it really well. They're doing extraordinarily well. And they've got trillions of dollars in the bank. But the bottom half is already suffering. And then that third one, that you know, the middle, upper middle class, they're going to start suffering. So, you know, if we, if we look at this really in a more nuanced way, uh, the economy is in trouble. And the Federal Reserve, they really are going to have to recognize this. And, and do what? They slow down. At some point, they're going to have to slow down. Here's what they're afraid of. Every time Jay Powell hints that they may slow down, the stock market goes higher. It erupts. That's part of the wealth effect. He wants to destroy the wealth effect. He's trying to get the unemployment number up to about 4.6, maybe 5%. So we're talking a couple million jobs. He wants a couple million people to lose their jobs. He wants anyone that has that so-called excess savings to get rid of it, uh, you know, and, and, and for people to pull it all in, for everyone to get to tame the To tame inflation. To tame inflation. And then you end up with other outcomes. And I know that the sort of like the happy story is, well, inflation's coming down a little bit. It's not as bad as expected. It's, you know, still very high, very, very high. But maybe it's heading in the right direction. And if we can balance this just right, then maybe if there's a recession, a double dip recession coming, because we had one technically already, if there's another one coming, maybe it'll be shallow and not that painful. And then we'll kind of get back to a more sustainable equilibrium. That's the optimistic story that we've been told that might be possible. Soft landing is what some people right. sort of shorthanded right. as. It sounds like based on the data that we saw today, you're getting increasingly skeptical that the landing is going to be all that soft. Yeah, I'm getting skeptical the landing is going to be soft because Jay Powell has, didn't give any indication that he a that he even acknowledges, um, you know, that the, their goal is to destroy, you know, to really hurt this economy, and they, you know, they he's not taking any victory laps. He's laying it on thick. Now, part of that could be guys that their most effective tool, one of their most effective tools, just being able to talk down markets, jawboning. Uh, you know, that has been a very effective tool for him this year. Every time Jay Powell's had a major speech, this will be the third time. Within 24 hours, the market has fallen completely apart. So he's been really effective at scaring the hell out the market. Um, but we do know not only are interest rate hikes happening, but he's taking they're taking money out of the economy. Right now, it's about $60 billion a month. You know, all of these things accumulate. They add up. And, again, I don't. These were signs. They were worse than expected. Again, all these, all the economic data out this morning came in worse than expected, except for maybe initial jobless claims, which is about on par. But that's growing. I, you know, if he had articulated that, I think we're going to start to see more weakness from the consumer. And then we got it today. We'd say, hey, this guy, he's on the ball. But instead, he said yesterday that the consumer is too strong, too powerful, too much money, spending too much, too confident. And we got the exact opposite message from the data today. So if he's this disconnected, remember, this is the same chairman of the Fed that, that got in trouble for saying that inflation was transitory for so long that he helped to get us in this bind in the first place. Oh, I mean, it's just it's tough to hear, Charles, because you don't yeah, you don't want this to be the case. But, you know, we also have to be honest and, you know, a lot more than I do about this stuff. And it's just like, oh. Sounds like it's going to be a rough go here. Is there a chance we've got like 30 seconds? Could the December numbers maybe be better than the November numbers maybe? Or is, is it sort of the irony, spiral? The irony, guys, we need bad numbers for the Fed to stop. 
we need we need more. We need the we need the inflation data to go down. We need the unemployment rate to go up. We, uh, we need we do need more people to get into the labor force. We need to see wages go down or flatten. We need bad data right now. Uh, so the Fed yeah, it's like go you're rooting for bad to get rid yeah. of the other bad. It's we're in a bad position, and a lot of it has to do with policy. Point we've been making for a while, Charles Payne. Thank you, sir. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. We mentioned yesterday that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has come out and, among other things, suggested that in Florida there needs to be a newly constituted counterweight, basically, alternative to the CDC based on the credibility crisis that the CDC finds itself in because of their own, I would say, self-inflicted wounds. Mostly related to the pandemic. The ineptitude, the incompetence, the contradictions, the politicizing of science, the influence of special interests like teachers unions. It's been a whole string of events that has deeply undermined public confidence in the CDC. There were whistleblowers inside the public health bureaucracy. We talked about this with Dr. Marty McCary not long ago, who have been alleging that they were silenced or bullied into submission. We know that very respected scientists and doctors were just ignored if they didn't go along with the capital N narrative. All of that, I think, is very dangerous. And the people who were saying what's really dangerous is DeSantis recognizing the reality, I think, are missing the root of the problem. This would not have political cachet. This would not have political salience and resonance if the underlying issue didn't exist. If the mistrust of this agency didn't exist in a very impactful and I think potentially harmful way. Now, why do I mention this again? Well, there's another angle to this story, the politicizing of the CDC and allegations thereof. Stephen Gutowski is one of the foremost firearms expert and gun policy experts in the country. He leans right. He has a website called The Reload, and he's written a piece that I'm just going to quote from here. Listen to this. The Center for Disease Control, CDC, deleted a reference to a study it commissioned after a group of gun control advocates complained it made passing new restrictions more difficult. The lobbying campaign spanned months and culminated with a private meeting between the CDC and its officials and three advocates last summer. A collection of emails obtained by the reload. A collection of emails obtained by the reload show. Introductions from the White House and Senator Dick Durbin's office helped the advocates reach top officials at the agency after their initial attempt to reach out went unanswered. The advocates focused their complaints on the CDC's description of its review of studies that estimated defensive gun uses happened between 60,000 and 2.5 million times per year in the United States. Attacking criminologist Gary Kleck's work, establishing the top end of the range. Mark Bryant, who runs the Gun Violence Archive, one of these anti-gun groups, argued that Kleck's estimate had been damaging to the political prospects of passing new gun restrictions and should be eliminated from the CDC's website. 
Despite initially standing behind the description in the defense of gun use section of its, quote, fast facts website on gun violence, the CDC then backtracked after a previously undisclosed virtual meeting with the advocates on September 15th of last year. The decision to remove a CDC commissioned report from the agency's own website on gun statistics at the apparent behest of gun control groups may further strain its relationship with congressional overseers, especially pro-gun Republicans who are set to take control in the House next year. Then the story quotes this Professor Kleck, whose work influenced the numbers, was published on CDC's website. Quote, Kleck, who's now Professor Emeritus at Florida State University's College of Criminology and Criminal Justice, stood behind his research. He said the CDC did not reach out to him for his perspective before making the change. He argued the removal of the reference to his estimate was, quote, blatant censorship. And he said it was evidence of the politicizing of the agency. Quote, CDC is just aligning itself with the gun control advocacy groups, Kleck told the Reload. It's just saying we are their tool and we will do their bidding. And that is not what a government agency should do, end quote. So just to recap here, anti-gun activists contacted the Biden White House and Dick Durbin's office. So Democratic politicians and political operations. They were then put in touch with the CDC, were able to secure a meeting with top officials at the CDC where they harangued them to get rid of a reference to a study that the CDC itself had commissioned on defensive gun uses. Now, it's a very wide range, 60,000 to 2.5 million annually. Whether you go with the very lowest end or the very highest end, it's clear that people use firearms in their own self-defense many times every single day in this country. I am not in a position of expertise where I can parse what number is more accurate or what the best methodology would be to determine that number, that's not my wheelhouse, right? The experts can go through the data and make their case. The fact is this guy's respected. He put out his number, which was 2.5 million in a CDC commissioned study, and they've had it on their website expressing this range. And because these gun control groups, these leftist activists didn't like it, and they argued that that number made more of a robust case for gun rights and made it harder for them to lobby for more gun control, they went in to the science, quote-unquote, right, the arbiters of science and public health, and they said, get rid of that number. It's making our jobs harder. We don't like it. We don't think it's accurate. Get rid of it. And the CDC evidently said, okay. So they scrubbed that statistic from their own website, a study that they had commissioned because activists on one side of a major hot-button issue found it to be politically inconvenient. Sounds very sciencey, doesn't it? Is that how science should work? Now, we saw the teachers' unions do exactly this type of thing, coming in, putting their thumb on the scale, altering official science for their agenda, for their purposes. Now here's the gun control lobby doing the same thing. In no way is this acceptable. This is highly disturbing. If you had conservative advocacy groups doing exactly this and changing the science, I mean, the war on science screaming in the media would be deafening. Instead, it takes kind of boutique niche websites with a right-leaning perspective like The Reload and others to shine any light on this that it's happening. This is not 
what the CDC should be doing. This is not what a scientific process or rigorous curiosity actually looks like in practice. And between all of the failures and politicizing and bungling during COVID and now this, I think that some of these public health bureaucracy officials should have very uncomfortable questions to answer under oath from Republicans. So keep a pin in this story, because I would imagine it's probably not over. Another episode of political, quote unquote, science underway in the United States. Very harmful to the CDC's reputation. The hits keep on coming. We'll watch it on The Guy Benson Show, and we'll be right back. We're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Just past the halfway point here on this Thursday edition of the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. All of our content is there, including the free podcast. We are joined now by Luke Rosiak, who's an investigative reporter at The Daily Wire, author of the book Race to the Bottom, Uncovering the Secret Forces Destroying American Public Education. And Luke, welcome to the show. Glad you're here. Thanks for having me. You are the journalist who has really owned one story in particular, which is the ongoing scandal playing out in Loudoun County, Virginia, in the public school system there. And we've mentioned it a few times, especially really in the thick of the gubernatorial race last year in 2021. It was a flashpoint in that race, what was happening in Loudoun County. And we can maybe do a few flashbacks about how things were treated back then, how it was covered some prominent folks reacting to the allegations in Loudoun County. There are some very serious updates to the story just in the last couple of days. But before we get to any of that, Luke, can you just lay out for this audience, people who might have an inkling and sort of remember a little bit vaguely what was happening last year in Loudoun, just give us the basics to set the stage for the updates. Well, the short of it is uh, in May of 2021, a boy wearing a skirt raped a girl in a girl's bathroom, uh, and the school district covered it up. Um, They wanted to pass a transgender policy a few weeks later that would allow transgender kids to use whatever bathroom they wanted. Um, and so the the boy, the victim's father was actually arrested at the rate at the meet, school board meeting the next month where they were, they were debating this policy. Um, and the, the superintendent had lied at that meeting, basically was lecturing parents saying there's no such thing as a transgender predator. Time magazine says so. And he was asked, well, have there ever been any sexual assaults in your schools in the bathroom? And he said no. And so the father of the rape victim was like, this just happened to my daughter three weeks ago, and you know it. So he was very mad. He got arrested for disorderly conduct. Um, they wound up, you know, the, the National School Board Association wound up using this to designate parents as domestic terrorists, and the FBI got involved against parents. Um, and so because the school board didn't acknowledge this rape and they didn't report it to the state as, as they were required to, they didn't even punish the kid. He, he got arrested separately by the cops, but they just transferred him to another school where he continued to harass girls and they ignored it. And so he wound up sexually assaulting a second girl as a result and strangling her, dragging her into an empty classroom and brutally sexually assaulting her. And so that's the short of it is that 
Um, there were, you know, this liberal school system wanted to pass a transgender policy so bad that when this horrible event happened, that kind of optically served as it would have made it very hard to, to take this vote and pass it. Um, they, they covered it up and they lied. And because of that, um, there wound up being uh, another student who was harmed as well. So that is the summation of what happened. And it's just outrageous. However you feel about the bathroom issue for transgender kids, if you are asked point blank as a person in authority over children and a school system, if there have been sexual incidents or assault related incidents in bathrooms in your school district and you point blank lie and you know better and you're trying to cover it up because of some other agenda that you're trying to push in that moment. And in the cover up, you're just shuffling the problem to another school where another girl is victimized. It's just an outright scandal. So in 2021, Glenn Youngkin was seizing on this, I think, appropriately on the campaign trail when some Sears as well, Jason Miaris, who is running for attorney general in Virginia, they all ended up winning. But that was a hard fought campaign. The Democrats were trying desperately to hang on to power in Virginia. And they were very dismissive, Luke, of this story. They were kind of taking the side of the Loudoun County School District. They were invested in this argument that parents really are the problem, the enemies. That was a big talking point for a while on the left, like, oh, these dangerous, out-of-control parents at school board meetings. As you pointed out, the DOJ was brought into it. The Education Department at the federal level, Biden's administration, got involved in trying to promulgate this whole narrative. And the man that you mentioned was one of the poster children, if you will, for the problem because he got dragged out of that meeting for very good reason. Uh, from his perspective, his daughter was raped and the school was lying about it. And yet he was sort of presented to the country as the face of a big problem and demonized. And over the home stretch of that campaign in Virginia, you had the Democrats poo-pooing the scandal, saying that this is nasty, hateful scare tactics from the Republicans and from conservatives. There was a New York Times column saying that this was all basically a hoax. The Times barely covered Anything about this scandal, aside from through the prism of it not really being real and just part of some larger story and manipulation from social conservatives. And in fact, while campaigning in Virginia for the Democrats in the McAuliffe ticket, former President Barack Obama weighed in on this. Here's a flashback to last fall, cut 18. We don't have time to be wasting on these phony, trumped up culture wars. This fake outrage that the right-wing media peddles to juice their ratings and the fact that he's willing to go along with it instead of talking about serious problems that actually affect serious people, that's a shame. That's not what this election's about. That's not what you need, Virginia. Instead of forcing our communities to cut back at a time when we're just starting to recover, we should be doing more to support people who are educating our kids and keeping our neighborhoods safe. All right. A trumped up phony culture war. And he was slamming Yunkin for paying attention to what was happening in Loudoun County that he said was just peddled for ratings. Places like the Daily Wire and Fox News or elsewhere. Now we know more. There are updates just in the last week or so. Can you give us a few updates on this phony trumped up culture war in the words of Barack Obama? 
Yeah, it turns out it's really not fake outrage. Believe it or not, people actually do object to their young girls being raped at school. Uh, and uh, now a grand jury has indicted Superintendent Scott Ziegler for allegedly lying. You know, the thing that was in my in my article 14 months ago where he said there was no rape and he knew that there was. Um, the school spokesman has also been indicted on felony charges that could carry prison time for lying to a grand jury. Um, now, I broke this story in October. See, the second girl was assaulted on October 6th, and I immediately uh, went public with the story and published my story October 11th, 2021, which happened to be a couple weeks before the election, just because that's when this, this rapist happened to strike again. Um, and, and so, Glenn Youngkin, this was an issue in the campaign. You had Terry McAuliffe, the Democrat candidate for governor, saying that he didn't think parents should have a role in kids' schools. And uh, people were able to see, you know, people who voted for Democrats maybe in the past, they don't like this any more than the Republicans do. They don't want their kids raped. They want to know what's going on in school. They want uh, transparency and honesty. Um, and there was also the issue of the, the prosecutor. You hear about these George Soros-backed prosecutors, and there was one of them here who actually had arrested the um, – you know, charged and actually sought jail time against the father of the rape victim. Um, and, you know, of course, she runs on decarceration and um, not putting anyone in jail. It's unheard of to seek jail time for disorderly conduct. But the actual district attorney prosecuted this case herself to try to lock the dad up. Meanwhile, the rapist is out free. So there was a number of issues that were just people felt it in their own life. And it, it, it couldn't have been more authentic. Um, and so it became an issue in the, in the gubernatorial campaign. Youngkin wound up winning, and you know he had promised during the campaign that there was going to be um, some some analysis of the facts here on, on what happened in Loudoun, and he followed through on that by convening a special grand jury to look into this. And so the grand jury came back with a really damning report that corroborated everything in my article and found that it was even worse than we knew. For example, a teacher actually walked into the bathroom during the rape, knew that there was two kids in a stall and did nothing, a bunch of more really troubling things like that. Um, and so the grand jury wound up coming back with these criminal indictments. So it's taken 14 months. It looks like there could be some actual accountability now. Um, but, you know, that probably wouldn't have happened if Glenn Youngkin hadn't won because um, – you know, I knew these facts. I reported them 14 months ago. I, I always knew they were real. They were demonstrably true. Um, but without Glenn Youngkin convening the special grand jury, um, because we have this George Soros prosecutor there, she wasn't going to convene a regular grand jury. Um, and so, you know, no, she was more she was grand... more invested in the Democratic narrative that parents are a threat to public education than putting a sexual predator behind bars, which is totally political. Unfortunately, that apparently is how this person views their job. And I'm afraid to say that you're right. If Glenn Youngkin and his team and that ticket had not won in Virginia, if it had been a few points the other direction, three or four points toward the Democrats, I think this whole thing would be by and large buried. The parents very upset about this would be framed as kind of weirdos, wackos, conspiracy theorists, uh, threats perhaps to Loudoun County schools. Uh, you and your reporting would be – just ignored completely. And on that point, because I think it's crucial to underscore here, the superintendent responsible for this, presiding over all of this, lying about it, has been fired, first of all, fired from the job, now indicted by this grand jury, another top official in the district with a felony indictment as well from the grand jury. This is as real as it gets. This was not phony. 
This was not trumped up. This was not about peddling right-wing nonsense for ratings. This was real. This was a series of attacks on innocent children who did not deserve it, and certainly one of them could have been avoided if the adults in charge had done their job. Luke Rosiak, my guest at The Daily Wire, did his job. He was all over this story. It made the rounds in certain quarters, but was broadly ignored, or even there were attempts to debunk what you had reported in other parts of the media, including the New York Times. I mean, they, as I mentioned, I think it was Michelle Goldberg wrote this whole column saying, this is all a big fake thing from right-wingers who are just hateful and trying to whip up outrage. And that's been almost the extent of the Times coverage of this. I mean, Luke, as you look at some of the hatchet jobs on you and your reporting and people refusing to believe actual reality, has there been any shift in tone or coverage now that the indictments are coming down, or are they still just kind of looking the other way because it's embarrassing for them? You know, they report on the indictments because they have to, and that's good, because they don't have to do any actual work. They're just transcribing what a government official said. Um, but that's what they wanted to do back when my, my story came out 14 months ago. They said, oh, well, we're, we can't corroborate this. Yeah, of course. The school spokesman didn't give you a, a statement saying that there was a rape cover-up. That's the guy that's indicted now. I did original reporting. That was all attributed. There was nothing anonymous or anything. Um, and they chose to ignore it, and they tried to say, well, maybe it didn't happen at all. Or, okay, there was a rape, but he wasn't really re- wearing a skirt. And over time, every single piece of my story was confirmed. I mean, the boy is now convicted of rape. He admitted in, in court to wearing a skirt. And now the superintendent has been indicted. Um, and so it's been kind of a slow vindication, but, uh, you know, I I knew it was true all along, and anyone who would take the time to read my story could have seen those details. There was sort of a a willful misreading of it where they said, you know, the New York Times are in the headline, the right's big lie about sexual assault in Virginia. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, it's pretty embarrassing to them. Um, But the bottom line is, is we had people here, like we do in most places in the country, that were in charge of schools that weren't caring about academics. And you can just look at their public statements they're talking about equity and race and the environment and Joe Biden, and they're never talking about, you know, math scores or things like that. They were focused on anything but just governing our school system. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, it turned out that this was a school system that was more concerned with optics than it was with actually doing the right thing for kids. And and educating them. Um, and, and unfortunately, it's, it's not just Loudoun. I mean, I, I broke the story because I live here, and I looked at the school district that was closest to me, but I wrote a whole, bo- whole book about schools, and it's my view that this kind of thing is going on in a metaphorical sense. Not all the details are going to be the same, but in terms of the lying and the cover-up and the focus on ancillary issues, that's going on in every school district in the country. Yep. Politics, not education, that is a big concern. The parents who were raising an alarm over this, especially that dad, totally vindicated. Your reporting vindicated as well. And now maybe we'll have some semblance, like a scintilla of accountability for some of the people involved. But you would think this could be a gut check time for people who wanted to dismiss this or come after him or come after you and say this isn't real. Uh, I doubt it. I mean, because it seems like we don't really do much self-reflection anymore. As a society, we just stick with the tribe no matter what the evidence shows. But the evidence in this case is real. It's absolutely damning. And we wanted to bring this update from really the person who knows more about this than anyone else, Luke Rosiak of The Daily Wire. The book that he mentioned is Race to the Bottom. You can check that out. Luke, we do appreciate your work on this. And as updates merit, we would love to have you back.
Thank you, Guy. We'll take a break. We'll come right back. It is The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. Back here on The Guy Benson Show, actually somewhat related to our last topic, that Loudoun County, Virginia update, we talked about the Club Q mass shooting in Colorado Springs a few weeks ago, which was heroically stopped by a military veteran who charged at the shooter and took him down, but not before people were maimed, injured, and murdered. So on Capitol Hill, the Democrats had a hearing. They brought some of the survivors to Washington to talk about what happened and to advocate for gun control and other things like that. And here's a headline from CNN Politics. Quote, shame on you. Survivors of the Club Q mass shooting directly tied Republicans' rhetoric to the massacre at the Colorado LGBTQ nightclub. Now, I have no doubt that some of the survivors decided to do that. And you can respect the anger and the fear of people who have gone through a trauma like this, even if you disagree with the conclusions that they might draw. And some of these folks might already be heavily left-leaning, and here's an opportunity to come to Washington and use the victim platform to attack political opponents. That's their choice to make. But you would think that there would need to be some evidence for a news organization to just, like, you know, repeat, okay, here's what the people are saying. Look at the article. Is there any evidence that Republican rhetoric is what caused this person, this monster, to go on the shooting spree? Even if there was some evidence that he was inspired by some conservative or right-wing thing, that still, I think, is a very gross thing to try to pin the blame for a violent outburst on an entire political party or political side of things. I think it's unfair when it happens to the left or to the right. The media generally just goes with one of those two narratives, of course. But there's no evidence in this case, which makes it even worse and more irresponsible and even more disgusting. In fact, the shooter is allegedly non-binary, him or herself, or I think it's himself, identifies as non-binary, goes by they, them pronouns, according to their lawyers, which could complicate this narrative of right-wing rhetoric, quote-unquote, causing the shooting. I have interestingly seen a number of media commentaries and analyses and news articles saying, well, We're really not convinced that this person is authentically non-binary, and experts aren't sure. I didn't realize we could question that at all. That is how someone identifies in any given moment, and to raise questions about that or doubt it, I thought was like almost a hate crime unto itself. But I guess if there's a larger narrative at stake, then we can really scrutinize someone's self-identity. Interesting. The rules are completely incomprehensible and ever-shifting For a reason, because no matter what, the narrative comes first, period. And it is so transparent. And to me, it's appalling. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up next. Congressman Dan Crenshaw is here straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Yeah, 
It's our final hour here on the Guy Benson Show on this Thursday or Friday Eve, as we sometimes prefer to call it. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free on demand when the show is over every day. No charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Lots of content there. Also, catch me tonight on the panel with Brett Bayer. I'll be on special report toward the end of the 6 p.m. hour Eastern time coming up on Fox News Channel. This hour is sponsored by The Finished Long Drink. A big hit at our Christmas party. Of course it would be. Fantastic. Delicious. Also alcoholic. 21 plus only. Always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com. You can see where it's sold near you as they expand everywhere. TheLongDrink.com. With us now, Congressman Dan Crenshaw, Republican of Texas, author of the book Fortitude. And Congressman, welcome back to the show. Merry Christmas to you. Hey, Merry Christmas. Thanks for having me, guys. You bet. All right, let's start with some policy and then maybe get to a little politics. We'll start with the border crisis, which we've been talking about a lot here on the show. For good reason, the crisis is as bad or worse as it's ever been. The last few months since the start of the new fiscal year, the numbers have been jaw-dropping, even compared to the exploding numbers last year. The number of known gotaways has mushroomed in a way that is completely unsustainable. And then, of course, there's the expiration of Title 42 in a matter of days that basically everyone acknowledges, even many Democrats, will make the catastrophe far worse. You represent the state of Texas, a border state. I know the administration seems to just not care about this issue at all, but the policy is what it is. The implications are what they are. What are you seeing and hearing when you talk to constituents and border officials on this issue? Yeah, look, this this continues to get worse. It continues to be on everyone's mind. It's it's certainly one of our top issues um, in the country. And it's frustrating as hell because, you know, you can keep throwing out all these numbers. And and at a certain point, they just become incomprehensible. Um, it, it, It becomes harder and harder to imagine hundreds of thousands of people into the millions of people. And what a disaster this is, just for our basic sense of sovereignty and fairness. You know, let's just boil this down to what it really is. It's it's it's, a, it's an infringement on basic sense of sovereignty, and it's unfair to legal migrants. It's unfair to people who legally want to claim asylum, who have a real asylum claim. Uh, it just tells, it gives off the message that you can just cut the line and you'll be fine. Um, and it, it's it's harmful to our border counties for sure. It hurts their infrastructure. It's, it's, it's obviously spreading throughout the country. I know everybody says they're in a border state, but... No, we're like Texas is really the focal point of this crisis. So what do you hear from border officials and border patrol? What you hear is is just pure demoralization. Um, you know, you saw what an icy reception Mayorkas got when he went down to, to the border this week um, because border agents know that he does not have their back, that he refuses to implement policies that, w- that would that would allow them to do their jobs. Right now, they're just told to just basically just process illegal immigrants, have them come in, process them, let them go. You know, that's not what Border Patrol is supposed to do. Border Patrol is designed to protect the border. Customs is supposed to process people. And if you don't have the paperwork, you go, you go back the other way. That, that's what a rational border looks like. And, you know, this administration has all the tools they need to, to get it back to a rational state. New legislation would help, but it's really just implementing the policy. Um, you know, we're working – like I'm running for Homeland Security chairman right now. Um, I, I think I think uh, with the focal point of the crisis being in Texas, my experience on the issue, we well suited to deal with it. And um, one of the things I'm pointing out is is the need for better foreign policy, better diplomatic relations, better negotiation, better leverage with uh, other governments, especially the Mexican government, for a few reasons. One, like I shared a video this week that a friend of a friend sent me, 
where it shows the Mexican government, Mexican police escorting buses of migrants right to our border. So, you know, because they don't want them just, just hanging out in Mexico. They want to just get them to the border and be done with it. Yeah, they want them here. Is, yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, because, you know, because they know it's open. So they're like, well, we're not going to They're like the Americans aren't even asking for help. So why would we give it now under Trump? It was a different story. So all this takes is some negotiating. That's all it takes. The Biden administration won't do it. There's another angle here, too, which is the cartels. The cartels facilitate this immigration crisis. They make a lot of money off of it. Um, and now they've also moved into the fentanyl business in the last few years, as everybody knows. And uh, that's an 80,000 um, dead Americans a year type of problem. Uh, so I've introduced legislation that's literally called Declaring War on the Cartels Act would give us the additional tools necessary to, to go after them legally and to go after Mexican government officials that aid and abet them. We have to escalate this. And, you know, especially when you're looking at the cartels, I don't understand why Democrats would be against this. Uh, I've, I've talked to a lot of Democrats about this bill. I've talked to a lot of Democrats about this new this kind of change in direction. And, you know, you, you, might, you might get some nods here and there, but we'll see. We'll put their feet to the fire. Because I'm trying to give them a common enemy here. This is a clear and present danger right at our border. It's killing 80,000 Americans a year. Help us at least. If you don't want to do immigration reform, at least let's help us target the cartels and encourage the Mexican government to do the same. So there's just multi -as multiple aspects to this problem. Okay? The administration, to the extent that they talk about this at all, usually when asked, they will typically pivot straight to their talking point, which is this is Congress's fault. Republicans won't play ball. Republicans don't want to make a deal, and so it's the Republicans' fault. That's their talking point. Uh, you know, I could probably go on for an hour about why it's wrong. In a nutshell, as one of those congressional Republicans being blamed, what's your response? Yeah, well, you know, the other thing they say is we, we just go down there to, for publicity stunts when we go to the border. We don't actually have a plan. We're like, what the hell are you talking about? We have a very detailed plan. You know, the other day, we, the Texas delegation got together. We, we basically combined all of the good, decent border and immigration legislation um, that deals specifically with just border security that, it's, that, that people have put forth over the course of years. And we said, look, this is, a, this is a solid Texas border plan. If you implement all of these policies, the border will be secure. It's not immigration reform. It's just, it's just a secure border. I don't see why that's partisan. The Democrats will say, well, you don't want to play ball because you've know, you, you got to have immigration reform included. Why? Really, why? Like, what is your what is your governing philosophy reason? Like, what is the underlying principle that you're abiding by to say that one has to come with the other? That's nonsense. And to the extent that they're willing to do anything, it's like, okay, tell you what, we'll we'll do more money for the border, which is, uh, this is like the, the Tillis Cinema deal, more money for the border for Dreamers. Now, <laughs> you, you got to be careful about about what we think, because a lot of people think, oh, we, we just need to spend more money and it'll solve it. You know, cause what do you hear all the time, even from our own side? It's like, well, we're spending all this money in Ukraine. Why don't we just spend money at the border? Why can't we do that? Because the money actually isn't the problem. It's, it's the policy that is the problem. Does some legislation right. need to be changed? Yes. I have, some, I have some legislation that would fix a lot of our asylum loopholes, for instance. But they have all the tools they need. They don't need to change a lot of laws to get, to get a hold of this problem. It comes down to some very basic disincentives. When people cross, you have to send them back. Not just like right across the border. So a lot of people are saying, like, why do we even let them cross? And I'm like, well, you, you could stop them, but then they'll just go a mile down the road and cross there. That, that actually won't solve the problem. You actually have to deport them. You have to repatriate them either back to Mexico City, which was the remain in Mexico policy, or back to their home country. And this takes a few extra steps. This takes the State Department doing its job and actually establishing those routes. So ICE could have all the funding in the world, all the airplanes it needed, and have the actual orders to deport people. But if the State Department doesn't make sure that there's a landing strip for that to happen, then it won't happen. This is also well, there's why, no political you know, will for it. They're, they're like no, actively exactly. against it in this administration. 
that, yeah, that's exactly the problem. And, and I guess the point I'm trying to make is that there is no legislation necessarily needed to even fix the problem. They can just fix it. Like we, I'm happy to pass a bunch of things that makes it easier to fix, but they can fix it. It is absolutely political will. This is done on purpose. They purposely don't want to make it easier to, to, to fill those flights from ICE and send people back. They don't want to create those disincentives. They're allowing the Mexican government to just bust hordes and hordes of people right to the border. They know it's happening, uh, and they're allowing it. You know, there's, and so it's, like, it's frustrating as hell, but we need to, this is why when 2024 comes up, you got to get out and vote. I mean, this is, this is an existential issue in a certain many ways. Congressman, let's talk about another issue related to national security. I know that you have said a lot about it. We've covered it here as well. Just want to give you the platform just to walk through your thoughts and your thought process on the Brittany Griner prisoner swap that the Biden administration pulled off a couple of days ago. You know, I've been saying basically every time it comes up that I'm thrilled for her and her family and her loved ones. And if I were in that boat, I would want the U.S. government to do anything to get her back. And as a fellow American, I'm thrilled that she's home. But if that's the end of the story, as far as the American public is concerned, I think that's kind of a distortion of some of the externalities involved in what happened, specifically in this exchange, who the other guy was, who wasn't exchanged on the American side. And you were just talking about incentives at the border crisis. There's also an incentives problem, in my mind, at play here as well. Yeah, there, there absolutely is. And, you know, I'm not sure I have any uh, original thoughts for you, but I'll, I'll, I'll be in violent agreement with you on, on the strategic implications of this trade. And they are this. Look, when, anytime you do a prisoner swap, it, it, it has to be in, like an in-kind prisoner swap. They're, 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 it has to be comparable. So if you're going to give away a, a notorious weapons dealer that's responsible for the death of tens of thousands, women and children, and genocides in Africa, also also accused of um, conspiring to kill Americans with the weapons that he's selling. He was number two on the most wanted list just behind Osama bin Laden. He's a, it's a pretty serious criminal that we're talking about, terrorist, criminal, whatever. Um, you want someone back who is at least some – now, obviously, we don't have a lot of American serious criminals that we're trying to get back, but maybe we have uh, service members. Um, you know, you, everybody's looking at the, the Paul Wheel and the ex-Marine. You know, he was charged with espionage. Whether or not he was conducting espionage remains unknown. I have, he says it, it was not true. But at least that would be somewhat close to being in kind. I would argue that you probably need all three Americans back to even come close to the level of, of letting the merchant of death go. But and, – and, and it's, not, it's not just, though, because it's fair, right? There, there's, there's actually strategic implications in this because you've got to look further down the road than just this trade. You have to look at all of our prisoners all over the world held by despotic regimes and, and, and how this changes their calculations going forward when they start to negotiate with you. And obviously it tells them that they don't have to give as much as they previously thought they did. That's a real problem. So by doing this stupid trade, and, and, and we all know why he did it. You know, like it, it, she, she fits a lot of the intersectional checkboxes. Um, it would be more popular with his base if he gets her versus this, this other guy. And um, you know that's how his base sees it. Um, that's how he sees it, and it's, it's superficial and foolish and unfortunate. Um, but because they did that, they've 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 created very negative strategic implications for the future. Yep. And by the way, that's not Dan Crenshaw saying what they're motivated by on the other side. They've said it themselves. I mean, it was a huge part of their messaging and their talking points yeah. coming out of this trade, focusing on you know her identity characteristics rather than anything else in terms of strategy or national interest. You know, they, they have been very open in terms of advertising it, and we're simply noticing what they're saying and relaying that to you. 
Congressman Dan Crenshaw, our guest, Republican of Texas. When we return, let's talk about domestic politics, the race for Speaker in the House, electoral politics. That's all coming up with Congressman Crenshaw right after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. We are back with Congressman Dan Crenshaw of Texas. All right, closer to home here, Congressman, a few political questions for you. Kevin McCarthy's in this battle to become Speaker of the House. Seems like there are a couple hardliner kind of right-wing guys in the caucus who aren't interested in him being Speaker. They want to vote against him no matter what. They're threatening to do that. Uh, You know, it's a very small majority, as we know. Not a lot of margin for error. How does this play out? Is McCarthy going to be Speaker? It just seems like there's a lot of drama and a lot of uncertainty here. Yeah, and I just want to be really clear with everybody about how to interpret what's going on. The speaker's race is between two people. It's between Kevin McCarthy and Hakeem Jeffries. There is no one else in the speaker's race. So for anyone who claims to be a Republican who is not supporting Kevin McCarthy, you are therefore supporting Hakeem Jeffries. By the way, that's a Democrat, just, just in case no one knew that. Yeah, uh, Democratic he's a pretty liberal leader. Democrat. Um, he's going to be the Democrat leader. Um, they stick together. You know, when they when they have when they go internally and they, they do their vote and they have their vote, I'm sure some people voted against the King Jeffries. Do you know what those people are going to do, those Democrats, when the time comes to actually have the election on January 3rd? They're going to vote for Hakeem Jeffries. And anyone on our side who does not vote for Kevin McCarthy, who won the, the race on our side, it's, it's like having a primary. There's no other way to interpret this. We had our primary. Now there's a general election. He won with about 85 percent of the vote. Anyone who does not vote for Kevin McCarthy is thereby enabling and voting for Democrats. There is no other way to interpret this. There is no other option. Um, I, this happens a lot, right? They want to extract promises. But, you know, I mean, geez, I mean, this is a longer discussion, but I would tell them is, you know, if, if you want influence, if you want to extract promises, maybe try making some friends. <laughs> you know, you can't, can't come to the table, throw food at everyone, then leave the table and wonder why you're not invited back. Um, Is there any possibility in your mind, Congressman, that at some point some moderate Republicans get together with Democrats and say, "Okay, we have a stalemate here. Let's make a very moderate Republican speaker. We'll get some of your votes. It won't be McCarthy. It won't be anyone to his right. It'll be someone to his left. Is that a realistic, at least, threat on the other side of this? It's happened before. Uh, there's, there's, it was actually a part of the arguments of a lot of a lot of Republicans here getting up and saying what they've seen happen in their own states, their own state legislatures. This is exactly what has happened before. Um, you know, because it, it, it's the only second. It's still an unlikely option, but it still is the only other option. So you know, you're not. Is what I tell these folks who just refuse to vote for McCarthy that you're not accomplishing anything here. You're, you're making us look foolish. You're making us look disunited. Um, you're, you're distracting from the issues that people actually care about. You know, I'm, I was like, well, you go back to your district and you ask every person in your district what their top 10 issues are that they think about. And, and you tell me that Kevin McCarthy's name comes up in any of those issues. Oh, I know the people cry out for Speaker Biggs or, you know, whatever. It's just it's yeah, not happening. It's, all, Congressman, it's, it's nonsense. I know you've got to run very quickly. I just want to read to you a statistic that I saw highlighted by John McCormick at National Review. This is from a New York Times analysis. Quote, Republican candidates won the most votes for U.S. House in all four of the crucial Senate states where Republicans fell short, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Georgia, and Nevada, meaning in those four states, Republicans won the quote-unquote popular vote combined 
in all the House races put together, but lost all four of those Senate races. As you look back at what was an underwhelming November for the Republican Party based on expectations and history and political environment and all of that, what is maybe your number one takeaway for the next time we do this in 2024? Yeah, look, I, I really don't think there's any mysteries here. Um, the, what the, the stat that you just laid out is one of many that indicate the same thing, is that general election voters are pretty discerning about the candidate. This is true every single time, right? You can vote for your favorite, like, fire breather in the primary and think you're doing, you know, oh, this is, this is great, we're going to be so awesome. But then general election voters think differently, right? They, they look at a number of different qualifications. They look at personality. They look at leadership. They look at history. They just look at a lot of different things more holistically. And you have to elect the most conservative candidate. That can also win. You know, in Georgia, the Republicans won, like, overwhelmingly in every other category except the Senate race. Um, this is not rocket science. It just isn't. I mean, it's, it's just you pick good candidates that are, that are fairly normal Republicans, um, that, are, that stand strong for conservative values, but don't but don't go out of their way to alienate moderates with this like endless bitter fighting that's that's quite meaningless most of the time, right? It's like die yeah. on every hill so I can prove to you that I'm a fighter. Well, you know what would be great if you fought and won. How about yeah, and that? that's the thing is you know? people people might not like what the lessons are from the election, but the voters in these states could not have been any clearer. And if you want to have power and do anything in politics. You have to win elections in general elections, not just in primary fights. We've got to leave it there for now. That's a much longer conversation that we can probably continue sometime soon. In the meantime, Dan Crenshaw, Republican of Texas, our guest. Thank you so much for your time. If we don't talk before Christmas, have a very Merry Christmas, and we'll catch up in the new year. Hey, great talking to you guys. It's The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Guy Benson. Happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com. Thanks for listening. Earlier in the program, in fact, at the very top of the show, we welcome back U.S. Senator John Cornyn, Republican of Texas. A lot to get to with him, including on the border crisis. Here's a taste of that discussion with U.S. Senator John Cornyn. Great to have you back on the show. Merry Christmas to you. Thanks, Guy. Merry Christmas to you. We, uh, We've got 10 days to go. We've got a lot of work to do here in Congress before uh, before Christmas, but uh, looking forward to it. Do you think it's going to get done? Let's talk about government funding. There's the continuing resolution discussion. There's the omnibus discussion. Will the Democrats take the Republicans' offer in the Senate? I know for a lot of people it's out in the country it's kind of a boring annual drama. Do you think this actually gets done before Congress – you know, goes on recess uh, for the for the holidays. Well, this is entirely contrived, um, and by that I mean that this end of the year drama and um, and threat of a government shutdown unless we pass a huge trillion point seven trillion dollar bill is uh, all by design because it maximizes uh, Chuck Schumer's and and Nancy Pelosi's power. What should happen, Guy, and this is process, and I know sometimes that's boring, but it, process is policy in a sense, is we would have pass individual appropriation bills sometimes before the end of the fiscal year on January, excuse me, uh, September the 31st, and we would have a chance to 
uh, debate them, amend them. Uh, the American people see exactly what we are doing, and it'd be a much more, um, I think, responsible way to deal with uh, the need to fund the federal government. But here we are, 10 days before Christmas, and uh, this is just exactly the sort of process that, uh, that Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi like, because it basically makes the rest of the rank-and-file members of the House and the Senate spectators uh, to uh, a game that they, they play. And your choice is to vote up or vote down, and uh, there's not any other options. Meanwhile, in the Senate, some rare bipartisan overwhelming agreement on an issue that we've talked about here, TikTok, very popular app used especially among younger people in this country. They love it. It's also owned by the Chinese. It's controlled ultimately by the Chinese Communist Party. It is without question an espionage tool, even though it's sort of addictive and fun for a lot of young people in the West. Tell us about what the Senate just did on TikTok, and do you think this actually gets traction and might become law? Well, Guy, you may remember I'm a member of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, so we're very much aware uh, through cl- both classified and open briefings about the, 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 what, uh, what the uh, People's Republic of China and the Chinese Communist Party that run that country, what they're doing. And essentially what they're doing is trying to hoover up all the personal data on every American and uh, stockpile that and use it uh, to their economic and, uh, and, and national security advantage. Um, you remember the fight over Huawei, which was a Chinese-based uh, telecom system that essentially right. was going to be used for the same purposes and also for surveillance on, uh, on adversaries by the Chinese Communist Party, the People's Republic of China. TikTok is the same. It's, it's uh, Somebody is, someone has called this, uh, this is addictive as crack. And certainly for many young people who don't understand uh, what they are getting involved with, they're giving up a lot of their personal information. And uh, many of them are posting, uh, posting things on there in order to become famous, or at least uh, uh, among their friends and peers. But uh, Make no mistake about it, there's no distinction between a a company like TikTok and the Chinese Communist Party, and I believe it's a national security threat. And the Senate just voted, was it it totally unanimous to treat it as such? I'm sorry. Yeah, we voted unanimously to ban it on government um, devices. So hopefully anybody who's got TikTok, an app, they will remove it from their devices uh, I would recommend people doing that, even though there's no law that extends to that point, uh, but to make sure that their their children, assuming they have uh, that on their devices, that they uh, remove it and uh, and not uh, not use it at all. Yeah, and one of the other concerns about TikTok, beyond the CCP just collecting vast amounts of data about huge numbers of people in this country and elsewhere is that they're also able to seed into the feeds of a lot of people who may not be reading a lot or following the news or following things closely, propaganda, political propaganda to benefit the CCP, to drag on the United States, for example. They won't market as propaganda, and this is just we're seeing just a little tip of the iceberg of what this type of tool could be used for by an unscrupulous authoritarian regime, which is what the CCP is, I think it's important to raise this red flag 
And this was an important, I think, bipartisan step, at least to control part of it. And so I'm glad and gratified to have seen that. My full interview with John Cornyn, Republican senator from Texas, available online at our website, GuyBensonShow.com. Also, the entire show, start to finish, every day on demand is free on the podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, it's the home stretch. An update on last night's festivities with producer Christine, plus a major announcement that we have to break down. That's next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Thursday. It's the Guy Benson Show, free podcast every day on demand. When the show is over, GuyBensonShow.com. Also catch me tonight on the panel with Brett Bayer and company on Special Report, coming up in the next hour on Fox News Channel. Well, we talked about it yesterday. Last night was the Christmas party at Fox News up in New York. I guess they had it at a bowling alley-type facility. I was down here in D.C., so I couldn't make it. And my understanding is the only Christmas party for the company this year is up in New York. So those of us down here, it's like, oh, well, tough luck. We'll survive. But representing the team at the party in the Big Apple, of course, was producer Christine because – party open bar of course she's going to be there and christine your goal coming into last evening was no vodka no red wine keep things under control and maybe avoid dancing on bars or tables hours into the evening was your mission successful mission accomplished now let's drop down the banner i did such (laughs) a good job (laughs) i i got in there I had a few beers, I think two, maybe three tops. Hang on. Was bowling available? Did you bowl? Bowling. So bowling was available. Uh, I did not bowl. I was not wearing the proper outfit for we'll, – we'll get to that in a second. For bowling, per se, uh, everybody – a lot of people were bowling, especially like the younger kids were definitely bowling. Um, you know, I felt – I'm going to say this, and I know you're going to be like, duh, yeah, I'm not surprised – I felt really old last night. Um, it Why? Kinda had like a, it kind of had Aside like a Aside from club. like the usual reasons. <sighs> I'm not that old. But well, we're, not, like a, we're not age shaming here. You just brought this up on your own spontaneously, so I'm trying to unpack this a little bit. See, I'm just playing your role again of unlicensed, uncompensated therapist, especially since Roy's on his way out soon because of an insurance conflict. But tell us how that makes you feel. It it made me feel bad. It really did. And it made me feel like I wanted old. to go home. <laughs> I wanted to go home. Like I no, it was they put on a very nice party. It was more of like a club type atmosphere, I felt like. You know, like the food was like, you know, little sliders and little hot dogs and tater tots and it it looked like like the younger kids were definitely having a blast. I felt like I was sort of a chaperone of some sort there. Which is hmm. shocking, because who would ever pick me to be that? Uh, no one, um, but was there a thought maybe at some point you could, like, put on a backwards baseball cap and go up <laughs> to the kids, as you call them, and say, greetings, fellow kids, I'm Cookie, and just try to fit in? 
No, no, there was no thought of that. There was no like rounding the kids up and be like shots on cookie. You know, nope, there was none of that. Um, mm. I felt like a responsible adult. And then I left even before the party ended. The party ended at 10. I think I was at the door by nine on the bus by 10. Party ended at 10. I think so. I don't know if everybody went out afterwards. Um, that was not me last night. No. Mm-mm. And so you had a total of, did you say two beers? I think I think I was on my third, and then I think I actually dumped it to leave. Wow, you abandoned, abandoned one of your soldiers, <laughs> and you headed home. You said you missed your family. I did. I, you know, like I don't really. I know it's crazy, but Bobby and I both work in radio, and he has crazy hours. I don't get to see him much during the week. Sometimes I'll be on the phone with his mom, and she'll tell me something about Bobby. I'm like, oh, I didn't even know that. She's like, do you not talk to him? Um, so. I just wanted to go home. and But no, wow. it looked like a really nice time. I did say to the bosses that maybe we could bring back that Cipriani's party we had a few years ago. That seemed to be more on my uh, level. Do you remember oh, that one? So oh, you weren't there. You went, I wasn't, but you went to the bosses and asked them to upgrade the party? I sure did. I sure did. Uh, I was going to say this was sounding like a new cookie, but that, that sounds like the cookie we know and love right there. Like... Yeah, bowling, this is fine, but let's up our game next year. Uh, yeah, we're, we're going to have well, to. Well, as, as I, chief I happiness officer here at the company, apparently you felt like something needed to be said. I actually I had a thought about this. I think I'm just going to have to start my own holiday party. I've never had like a big one before in like oh, a hall boy. or something, but I think it's time for a cookie. In a hall? Like, yeah, like a – like a, a, a space, not just like someone's home, you know? You're like rent out a venue now? Yeah, like I feel like I would definitely be good at like one of those, um, what is that, the VFW Lodge or something like, what is it, one of those things? Yeah. You know, like a yeah. firehouse hall or <laughs> a firehouse. <laughs> you know, they always have party halls. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. where my sister's Sweet 16 was. It was nice. <laughs> Great. Well, that sounds wonderful. I love that for you. Thank um, you. I'm busy. You will, you will be busy. attending. Yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't even give a date yet. Yeah, but you know, it's such a difficult time of year. I've got a bunch of Christmas parties coming up this week, and I have to really pace myself. Hang on, before we move on, you said something briefly, something about your outfit not being appropriate oh. for bowling. Were you? I don't even want to know, but I kind of do. So I was wearing a nice turtleneck with a nice uh, red and black and stripes, like you know, like a little plaid. Uh, skirt, like wool. What's what's wrong with that in terms of bowling? Well, uh, it just didn't seem like the appropriate alpha for bowling. And then I'm not going to name names, but there is a, a major talent on the FBN side that walked up to me to say hello and then proceeded to tell me in front of other coworkers of mine that she loved my kilt. And then she just walked away. <laughs> well, I mean, did it look kind of like a kilt? No, I didn't think so. And I said, did she just say what I think she said? And some of our salespeople on our side were with us and like tears going down their face laughing. I'm like, did, did she just say <laughs> she liked my kilt? Well, it was a compliment. I mean, she was very lovely and very nice, but, um, you know, way to make me feel even older or stranger or already more out of place than I felt. Did you um, do a Danny Boy solo on your bagpipes? <laughs> There was no karaoke there, I may have. But I have to say, and I'm just going to put this out there, and I'm going to be honest, vodka would have made it better. That's all I'm going to say. You can judge me all you want. It just would have made it better. 
But I, I mean, knew better. We don't need permission to judge you, honestly. But I think that this was good restraint. Yes. It was, after all, a Wednesday. It's not like this yes. was even a Thursday or a Friday night. It's sort of like midweek. And at a certain point, you don't need to go super hard every time. And I think it's good that you took a step back, got home at a reasonable hour, saw your family. These are good things. Now, why it wasn't there, Dan couldn't make it. You did bump into Maxie, your old oh, friend, our boy. old colleague. He was there. Yes, now, does he, he count was. as one of the kids, quote, unquote? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. He w- but he was hanging out with us. Like, Matt, I have to say I'm so proud of Maxie. He looks all grown up now. And, of course, I had to embarrass him. He was with his friends from his show. And we were on the coat line, and I screamed down, Maxie. And he, he looked up right away, and he goes, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. No, he hears that in his nightmares. Uh, now, if I had been there, would I have been on the kids' side or on the olds' side? Or am I sort of the line of demarcation? No, you would have been on the older side, I believe. You would have enjoyed the music, but, I mean, there was some, you know, the talent was there. I think you would have hung out with them. Um, I'm not sure you would have been able to keep up with Jimmy Fela per se. Uh, but Drinks-wise? Yeah. Oh, obviously not. <laughs> No, Jim. Jim's a professional. All right, I'm not. I'm not messing with that. He knows what he's doing, and I would never be foolish enough to even try. But that was probably fun. Yes, yes. But you know, Jimmy, he's all over the place. Everybody wants to come up to him and say hello and talk to him. You know, he's like the life of the party. Oh, he's a big um, personality, especially yes, with a couple he... pops in him. It's fun. <laughs> so overall, very nice night. But um, yeah, I think I have to create my own holiday party. Okay, so you can go ahead and brainstorm that. Maybe consult Bobby first. Oh, Maybe right. ask Judgy Joyce for some pointers, <laughs> and then you can get back to us. Now, before we go, I did talk in the tease right before the home stretch about this major announcement. It is not our major announcement. It was a major announcement that was flagged yesterday by former President Donald Trump. He had put out on social media, all caps, major announcement coming tomorrow. There was this cartoon figure of him with... Lasers coming out of its eyes, and people were trying to speculate what was coming. And I don't think we even got around to mentioning it on the show yesterday. However, we now have our answer. And before we get to the real answer, Christine, do you care to tell the audience, do you care to tell the class and share with the class what you thought he was going to do today in his major announcement, quote-unquote? Not really. I don't care to share it, no. I actually, I, well, I don't really remember it, to be Oh, yes, honest. you do. Yes, you do. Wyatt, do you care to remind us of what Christine was willing to make a bet over yesterday about what the announcement was going to be from Trump? Possibly a VP pick? That's right. Oh, she thought that yeah. Donald Trump was going to announce <laughs> Carrie Lake specifically as his running mate today before <laughs> Christmas, like more than a year before Iowa. Uh, and I said, Trump has some strategic foibles and makes questionable decisions let's put it that way sometimes but even he i thought would not go there it would make absolutely no sense it would look totally desperate so i was willing to bet that that was not going to be the case you were also willing to bet and you were of course as is so often the case in our bets incorrect and wrong Mm. on the losing side of the bet wyatt wasn't so sure about that but his guess was trump returning to twitter which at least made more sense given all the buzz around elon i felt like that was a plausible explanation of what was going to come. In fact, all those predictions were incorrect. It was something even sillier and more frivolous than we could have imagined. 
Trump announced a brand new collectible line of trading cards of himself for purchase. So all caps, major announcement. There it is. You can get Donald Trump trading cards and trade them with your fellow MAGA friends to your heart's content if you would like to do that. And I know, Christine, you probably already rushed out and purchased uh, large quantities of this as stocking stuffers. Well, now you know what you and Wyatt got for Christmas, so thanks. (laughs) Oh, good. Can't wait. And in that same spirit, I would like to make a major announcement. The Friday edition of The Guy Benson Show will air between 3 and 6 p.m. tomorrow, as usual. Looking forward to it. Hope to have you here. In the meantime, catch me on Special Report tonight on the panel, and have a great evening. We will talk to you tomorrow. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.